Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, October 26th, 2021. Hello everyone, it's Shannon and I am here with you today to chat about new books and to bring you another author interview. This week I am sharing an interview that I did not too long ago with author Wendy Holden. She was on the podcast back in 2020 for her novel, The Royal Governess. She is back to talk about her latest novel, The Duchess. And after that, I do have a handful of new books for you. Um, Some really great things, even though, as has been the case for the past few weeks, I don't have a huge amount of them. So let's get started with the housekeeping information, followed by the interview, and then I'll be back to talk about some new books. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro Podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am very, very excited to welcome Wendy Holden back to the podcast. She was here last year to talk about The Royal Governess, and she's back again to discuss her latest novel, The Duchess, which is scheduled for U.S. release on September 28th. Wendy, welcome back to Book Bistro. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me back, Shannon. It's great to be back with you. You are very welcome. Could we start out with um, you giving listeners a brief introduction to The Duchess? I know that you talked about it a little bit when you were writing it um, last year, mm-hmm. but I would love for you to you know, give, give listeners a bit of an overview. Sure. Um, the Duchess is uh, a fictionalization of um, the life of Wallace Simpson, but only up to the point of the abdication, because I became very interested when I was writing The Governess in in the character of Wallace. She appeared in a chapter and it was only meant to be a little cameo part, but it became quite a big one. And she sort of grew and grew within that novel. And she seemed to me to be worthy of a book of her own. Uh, And I was I started to read around her, read around her story, read her her own autobiography, which has got the stunning title, The Heart Has Its Reasons, which is just a great title. It is a great title. It's a great title. And, uh, and she comes across um, in that book as being so 
different from this sort of hard-hearted, calculating, scheming, manipulative, ambitious, greedy woman that we Brits in particular are encouraged her to view, sorry, encouraged to view her as. And she she comes across as, as modest, as funny, as witty, as and warm. And I was also interested in the fact that it was so much so her early life is is so obscure I mean people tend to concentrate on the abdication and and the run-up to it but her early life was so interesting particularly when she came to London because she arrived in London in 1928 knowing absolutely nobody apart from Ernest who she'd come to marry uh, and she had they, they had no money they had no contacts and they were cold-shouldered by the Brits because they, they, you know, Wallace wanted to have some fun. She wanted to make friends. She wanted to, you know, join whatever, in whatever was happening. But they were absolutely shut out of everything. And she had a very lonely time. And it was really unhappy. So, but she, she describes these years with good humour and with resilience and, and sort of... So, for example, she couldn't understand what um, Cockneys was saying. She did her own shopping, which was quite unusual for a woman at that time. And she would go around, a woman of her class at that time, one, a woman who was running a house, basically, and, and had um, some kind of status, although they had no money. She would go around to the shops with her copy of Fanny Farmer's cookbook and she would show <laughs> the butcher what cut she wanted and she would insist on you know being treated properly and not being sort of um, brushed off as a as a sort of clueless American a clueless foreigner so she was a gutsy woman and so I was interested in this this what I, I came to think of as her Cinderella years the years before she met the handsome prince and began to wonder how exactly had it happened how had she come from this very low base this very sort of unpromising start in London to being the favourite uh, the beloved favourite of the most eligible man pr pr practically on the planet because um, Prince of Wales, Edward Prince of Wales was the heir to the, the throne of the, of the British Empire and also he was fantastically popular, he was so handsome, he was so charismatic, he was like a film star, so how had that, how had she come to be his favourite, how had that happened? How had they met? What, what had gone on? What did they see in each other? So this was a story that I set out to describe. So that's basically what, you know, what, what the Duchess is about. It's about those early years before the abdication. It's fascinating to me how, you know, you were writing the royal governess and just kind of, you know, intended to bring Wallace into the story. And yet, you know, from that grew this book where she is actually given, you know, a, a voice and a perspective of her own, which as an American who knows very little about Wallace Simpson, um, I found to be just really, really interesting, um, you know, kind of beyond like the brief mention that we get in, in history books that, you know, um, the Prince of Wales gave up the throne for her. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I could say a little bit about that because um, the way that her, her, her role in the royal governess was, was, it wasn't a big part. It was only one chapter, but it was massively significant because where she comes into that story is um, at Balmoral, Marion Crawford, who was the heroine of the royal governess, the, the royal governess of the title, has gone to Balmoral with the royal family. And um, 
Willis Simpson has, has turned up at, at Balmoral. She's been invited by the king, as he'd become king by then, Edward VIII. And she, Marion comes across her in, in the woods. She's, she's gone for a walk and she finds Wallace in the woods and Wallace is really upset. And what, and what has happened is that she's arrived at Aberdeen railway station, which is the nearest railway station to Balmoral Castle, uh, to be met by the king. And later she discovers that this was the cause of the most almighty row and the local papers were very, very critical of it. And what had happened was that the king had supposed to been opening, he, he was supposed to be opening uh, a hospital, a, a wing of a hospital, but he blew them out. So he could go and meet Wallace at the railway station. And there was this huge, massive hoo-ha about it. The Scots were furious, everybody was furious. And Wallace got the blame for, for all this, you know, in, in, in all the sort of subsequent reports of it, she was the, 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 the kind of terrible reason why this had happened. But when I was reading this and when I was writing the chapter, it struck me that Wallace would not have had a clue that this was happening. She wouldn't have known that the king was going to not open a hospital and go to meet her instead. I mean, and if she hadn't, right. that, she would have been horrified. And so I thought, well, hang on a minute. So that's obviously not what really happened. She must not have known anything about it. And what other incidents are there where she's had to carry the can, where she's been blamed for what he's done? So that's, I started, and once we started to look at her story from that reverse perspective, from that, you know, looking up from, you know, from a different, completely different point of view, the whole thing sort of fell into place for me. And there were lots of small incidents where I could see that she had been blamed unfairly for things that he had done. But it led me in, inexorably and inevitably towards the most massive thing that she was blamed for, which was the abdication itself. I mean, she's always held to be the cause for him, him leaving the throne. He left the throne so he could marry her. He was in love with her, so he left the throne. He had the choice, the British throne or the American divorcee, and he chose her. And the, most, and the more I started to look into this, and the more I looked at their personalities and their own stories and what they'd said to each other at the time and what they'd said to their letters and their diaries, I thought, no, this isn't, this isn't true. There's something not quite right here. And I actually drew the conclusion in the end that Wallace had been used by Edward, but far from he using he, the traditional way round is that he supposed, she's supposed to have used him for her own social ambitions, for her, you know, lust for power and money and jewels and whatever. And, and that's a story, that's what happened. But actually it seemed to me much more likely that it was the other way around. And he realised right from the start, way before he became king, that he never wanted to do the job. He was completely unsuited for it, not least because he didn't want to have any children himself, having had a ghastly childhood. And I think when he met her, he really liked her. I'm sure their love was genuine, but certainly part of her attraction for him, I'm sure, is that he realised she was absolutely the wrong woman in the eyes of you know, the British establishment. She was divorced, she was a foreigner, she was, you know, the wrong wrong, because being a divorcee in itself was absolutely out of the question for a King of England to marry because the Church of England opposed divorce. It was absolutely impossible for him to do that. 
So he realized that by insisting on this marriage, he was never going to be able to, to take the throne. And I think that was possibly what he had intended all along. And, and the reason I came to this conclusion particularly was one, one well, there's one aspect of the abdication which makes no sense unless you see it in this light, which is that he could have waited to marry her until after he was crowned. That, because the, the abdication happened in December 1936 and his coronation, Edward VIII's coronation, was set for May 1937, so just a few months away. And I really think, and it was said at the time, that had he waited until after the coronation, he would have been so popular because he was insanely popular anyway and he was a total pin-up of the, the entire empire. He, was, he would have been, he would have looked so glamorous at his coronation. It would have been a sort of massive multimedia sort of extravaganza that would have sort of gone into, you know, everybody would have just, you know, if it was possible to, for him to be more popular, he would have been even more popular. And he could have married anybody after that and I'm sure he could have married her. But he didn't want to do that. And I think the fact that he didn't insisted on, on the marriage before the coronation really shows that he just never intended to be king and to marry Wallace. He was using her to get off the throne. So that was one of my um, the themes in the, in, in, in the Duchess. But I didn't think um, that Wallace had any idea that this was happening and would, would have been completely horrified had she realised, and in, in the Duchess, you have this awful moment when she realises that this has been his plan all along and that she's trapped, which I think is probably really what happened. So it was all so it's, it's all, all quite dramatic and quite sort of, I had this feeling that I was breaking new ground, but it seemed to me much more likely and the facts seemed to fit my interpretation far more than the idea of this obviously nice woman being this sort of evil scheming person that um, she's always portrayed as so yeah so that's the uh, that was that particular aspect of it I love that just you know through through writing fiction through actually re-examining facts and coming you know trying to come to an understanding of the people involved that you were able to you know find a, a theory that makes some sense yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And once you have, once I had my view, I mean, I, 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 as from the start, I had a different view of her, and it wasn't until I was some way into writing the book that I, I realised that that was was how I was saw the end, and it sort of fitted everything else I've been thinking about him because I don't think he was a bad person. I think he genuinely wanted to give up the throne for good reasons. I think he thought that he would not be a good king. And he had a brother with a sort of crowd-pleasing wife and two adorable little girls who would be much better at it. And indeed that proved to be the case. So rather than, you know, Wallace Simpson being this um, subject of vilification and criticism as she has been ever since, I mean, I think we should be putting out statues to this woman. You know, she it's people who love the British throne and, and, and think the Queen is great. Well, the Queen wouldn't be the Queen without Wallace Simpson. So, you know, she there's there's a lot. Um, there's a, you could say that she contributed a lot to the British royal family rather than taking a lot away. And, you know, I think the whole like one of the best things about historical fiction, at least for me, is the ability to sort of see different perspectives. And even if there are things that we can't confirm necessarily, like we cannot mm -hmm. say 
like with a hundred percent certainty that this happened or that happened. Mm -hmm. I feel like it gives us, especially those of us who, you know, perhaps don't know a great deal about a particular time and place, a really nice lens into that and said, okay, like this, this is what could have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. You get, you get, you get license um, to, to, to look into something from, from your point of view. And it's great fun to be able to explore that in fiction because more, much more so than biography, you have, you know, you're able to fill in the gaps in the way that, that, that seems to you to be the right way. And also you're able to create um, a whole world because the, the world of uh, the London of the 1920s and 30s was a, was a really colourful and exciting and fun place. You know, one of the reasons why, why Wallace so much wanted to be part of it. I mean, it was, you know, people were partying, there were balls, you know, there were, there were people just dressed up to the nines and, and did all these amazing things. I mean, they, they, the bright young things, as they were called, the sort of, um, uh, sort of young, fashionable people of the time, would go to the most unbelievable lengths to enjoy themselves. So for example, and very they used to do very elaborate things. And one of the things they used to do were called um, treasure hunts. And what a treasure hunt was, was say sort of like 10 or so bright young things would assemble at Horse Guards Parade in central London, this kind of big parade ground where the Queen does the trooping of the colour in June every year. Um, they would all they would all meet there in their sports cars and they would be given a map. And then they would all race off. And the idea was that they had to find sort of um, clues all over, usually East London. So they would sort of roar through the kind of impoverished districts of the East End in these kind of amazing um, sports cars in the middle of the night looking for clues that would be left. And say they would be quite grisly, some of them. So, for example, you get a body lying in an alley in Whitechapel, which is where Jack the Ripper um, used to... You said terrorizing oh, yes. neighborhood, and uh, and the and the, the body lying in the alleyway in in Whitechapel will be holding a clue, and that clue would send you to Traitor's Gate at the Tower of London, where a masked axe man would have another clue, and it would be like this. You know, they would go all around London doing all this stuff, and and you know, it was unbelievable that the the effort that went into it, and the and the ingenuity. But this is how people used to roll. You know, there was they just used to go to great lengths to to have fun. And then there were all the kind of famous bands and the famous nightclubs and people drinking their heads off. And, you know, it's 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 just um, so hectic, you know, a, he a hectic enjoyment that, that um, is quite different from the way. I mean, and so unwoke, you know, it couldn't be less like people, you know, trying to. Uh, you know, do do things that are sort of uh, planet saving or I mean, these are, this is exactly the opposite of that. They just used to just go crazy and enjoy themselves as much as possible. And I think it was to do with, you know, the, the post First World War, um, the, the era, you know, post that sort of terrible apocalypse. They everybody was you know wanted to have as much fun for as long as they could. And of course, another war was looming anyway. So it, it's uh, they certainly packed it in. So I enjoyed creating, creating that world, you know, getting a feeling of the, of the fun of it and the sort of feverish um, enjoyments um, of it all, which, which was um, really has a, a real atmosphere, I think, the, the, the London of, of those days. It is that period between the wars that I think in a lot of, you know, what would be considered like the major countries of the time, um, countries that participated in World War One, and then of course we're leading up to World War Two. Like there is that, you know, here in the U.S. we had like prohibition, and yes. 
all the time of like the the flappers and the speakeasies. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and it it kind of parallels what you're saying. The gangsters. About- yeah, yeah. Yes, gangsters. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's a very a very a, a very interesting time, very, very graphic, very, very theatrical. So yeah, so and and put the personalities of the time seem to cut seem to to, to match it you know so you've got very lots of very camp people lots of, I mean lots of the bright young things of of London in the 20s and 30s but you know the the, the, the sort of um the, the they, they were very you know you would get men with lots of makeup men dressing up as women I mean it was all all kinds of sort of gender bending craziness which uh, could you know was so nothing is new you know everything everything that's that we see today has, has all been done before and and done by these people you know so it's quite quite pioneering politically sexually um artistically it's uh, it's a real mashup so that was that was fun too that feeling of a, of a whole new world you know in, in 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 every way yes so can you tell listeners anything about what's coming next for you now that sure absolutely up well, to the yeah, release yeah. of yes. the duchess absolutely well i'm working on my new novel which is a sort of i'm, I'm thinking of these three books the duchess and the governess before the role governess before it, and uh, and the one I'm working on now is a kind of trilogy because they all concern women who came from different worlds and entered the royal family and kind of put a bomb under the, the royal family, really, either intentionally or not. And so um, the the royal governess was was fell into that category, you know, a woman who came from uh, who intended to teach poor children in the slums of Edinburgh and ended up uh, teaching the little princesses with uh, results that were, were quite sort of dramatic and, and difficult for her. But leaving the Windsors completely changed. And obviously Wallace um, had a, an enormous impact on the royal family. And the third one um, is a little bit closer to our own time uh, and is about the early years of Princess Diana because I'm, I'm interested in... Oh. Yeah, I'm interested in these women what happened before they became the people that, that they are. So I was interested in the forces that shaped Diana, where she came from, what she experienced. And of course, the whole, again, this is another, the 1980s, the 1970s, 1980s, um, another real melting pot of the time, a time of great political and cultural change uh, against which this uh, story was forming, the story of an, you know, uh, a girl uh, looking for the handsome prince. So, and a kind of medieval fairy tale, which was set against this very modern modern world. So, I think uh, that that's that's been, that's very interesting to write, and that's what I'm working on at the moment. Awesome! I remember, you know, I was I was young when when she died, yeah. and I just remember. I think for me that was like the first time I really saw like the world as kind of this like huge stage where everything kind of played out, you know, this is someone that like really didn't affect our lives in the US, you know, she wasn't like a fixture here. And yet, like so many people were drawn to, you know, to her story and really, like, were were hit hard by her death. Absolutely, absolutely. No, it was that that it was absolutely it was it was really interesting. And, And how did that happen? And why? And what was it about her? 
um, that, that, that made people feel that they could identify with her so strongly. And she was a real one-off, but, uh, but her background was a very, very difficult one. And, and I think that's partly what shaped her. So I'm interested in looking at, at, um, at where, you know, as I say, where she came from and what happened and, uh, and why. So uh, that's, my, that's, my new, that's my new challenge and I'm, what I'm working on at the moment. But it's, it's got so many similarities with the Duchess uh, in, in, in the sense that, you know, someone who came from a difficult background and had a, a, a huge impact on, on the royal family. Yes. Uh, and, some, and in some similar ways, because you know, most of these women are modernisers. You know, they, they have different ideas about how the institution yes. should conduct itself. I mean, Wallace Simpson, one of the reasons that Edward VIII was drawn to her so strongly wasn't so just because she was the wrong wrong and that suited his purpose it was because she also encouraged um things him in things that were really important to him so for example he could see that the royal family was a very over traditional institution that it needed to change it needed to become a bit more modern and she really encouraged him she was probably the only he said to her that she was the only person that ever talked to him about his work who was interested in his work and took him seriously when he said he wanted to modernize it most other people could see that it was pretty impossible to modernize the British royal family and Diane the same you know her approach as 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 we all saw um was revolutionary you know she was touching people she was hugging people she was you know um doing all the things that the that the queen that Prince Charles never did I mean they were always arm's length with everybody even though they did their walkabouts so these these are modernising women. Crawford, Marion Crawford in the Royal Governess, again, a woman who came into the institution, couldn't believe that these little girls were living in this Victorian way and wanted to modernise their lives, wanted to take them out into London, to take them on the tube, to take them swimming, to take them shopping at Woolworths, you know, to try and show them how people actually live. And so this is a theme that goes through all three books. But I suppose... Ultimately, um, given the fact that all these three modernizers kind of came up against a brick wall in one way or another, it shows that it's not really, you know, it's it, people try it, but it doesn't really work. But it, it's interesting. Why doesn't it work? You know, why? It's an immovable force. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's an immovable force. Absolutely. And an irresistible object or the irresistible force and the immovable object. Exactly that. That's exactly what these are. These are stories of that situation. So, yeah, so very interesting. Tells us a lot about, about ourselves, particularly here in Britain, um, and um, the, the whole, uh, uh, yeah, women, particularly women in, in this um, ancient institution. Of course, uh, you know, Meghan Markle's recent experience being another yes. interesting uh, angle on the whole thing. And, of course, she, there, are, there are lots of similarities between her and Wallace Simpson, you know, as, as has been pointed out many times both divorcees, both from the outside world, both being blamed for taking a popular prince out of the country, so on. But uh, yeah, interesting. The, the stories go keep coming round, don't they? They do. They do. <laughs> and it intrigues me that, you know, there, like I've seen a lot of nonfiction accounts of Princess Diana. You know, there's lots of like biographies, authorized, unauthorized, yeah. Um, but you don't really see her in fiction. And so I'm really yeah. excited to see, you know, how that like, how that plays out for you and how yeah, you're able Thank to bring you. her to life 
Yes, yes, absolutely. It's definitely a challenge because, as you say, and it's a big subject and one that everyone will have a view on. But uh, I, there, there, and it always seems to me it was slightly the same with Wallace uh, as well. But that interesting that no, there are no fiction, um, fictional versions of their lives, no novels about them when there's so much um, screen. Uh, material, you know, the Windsors and uh, ah, sorry, yes. the, Windsors, the, the Crown, well, the, the Crown, too, in the case of the Crown, and, uh, and the various films, the new Diana film, lots of, 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 of screen interpretations, but no novels. And it seemed to me that why not? You know, it's, 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 it's an obvious one to try. So I'm absolutely. having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit, I mm -hmm. have to ask you, what have you read recently that you want the world to know about? Oh, right, great. Yeah, I've read a really wonderful book called Still Life, which is by a British author called Sarah Winman, which is the most fabulous book, which I really recommend. It's, it's loosely based on E.M. Forster's um, Room with a View. So it's set in ah. Florence. But it's not about those people. It's about some of them touch on the original characters in A Room with a View, but it's more a set of friends who come from London. They come in the 40s to Florence. And we, we see the subsequent decades through the, the, the lives of these people. And they're a completely compelling and, and, and sort of crazy bunch of friends. And it's just so life affirming it's beautifully written it's strongly evocative of italy so any if you love italy and you love ah, it, yes. you love this book and it's it's just you know it's it's all about love and about friendship and about florence and about art and about history and the war and literature you know it's just got everything in there and it's it's, it's brilliant i think it's a wonderful book so that i would recommend that still life by sarah winman that is amazing. I will have to keep an eye out for it. Do you know yeah. if it has been published here or is I, it? I don't know if it has or not. It should certainly should be. Uh, okay. I'm sure it will be. I'm sure it will be because it's so brilliant. It can't not be. So um, I will keep yeah, an eye out then. Yeah, definitely. That's my top recommendation. I always love, especially authors that that are in Britain, you know, that like the publication is, is different here and there yeah. like pretty often. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm always very excited to kind of see, you know, what is, like, sure. what is kind of yeah, hitting people. Is, yeah. This has been out a few months. So I, I expect if it's having an American publication, it will be coming up pretty soon, I would think. But I will um, take a look and yeah. see if I can find it. It might, you know, already be here and just have escaped my, um, sure. my notice. It, they did the BBC did a um, an audio version of it on the BBC website. So if you if, ah, you're able okay. to, if you're able to get that, it's on BBC on the BBC Sounds website. You can it, you can find it there in the audio books. They did a wonderful version of it over two weeks. So you can you get a, an idea of it from that. It's great anyway. Excellent. So that's one way. That's one way of enjoying it. <laughs> well, hopefully. I will find it and hopefully yeah. when people, yes. when people know, hear this interview, it. they will yeah. also yeah. find it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule so close to release day. Because um, it's, you know, getting getting close here as we yes, record. Yes, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Just a week before. 
Yeah. And I'm just so glad to have had you back and to hear you talk about uh-huh. the Duchess and give yeah. us, you know, a, a glimpse into what you're working on. Before yeah. um, I let you go, can you let listeners know the best way to find you online? Yeah, I'm on, you can find me wendyholden.net. That's my website. And if you go to that, you'll find all my links to Instagram and Facebook and uh, so and Twitter and so on. So I'm all, I'm all, all there. Perfect. All right. Well, again, this is The Duchess by Wendy Holden. It is scheduled for release on September 28th here in the U.S., and I thank you so much for spending some time with me today. It's my, my absolute pleasure, Jan. It was brilliant to be able to come on and talk to you about the, the, the most important American ever to hit the British uh, shores, I think. <laughs> yes, I love that description. <laughs> All right, so new books. When I have been looking at the list of new releases, I have seen so much horror Um, And we don't talk a lot about horror on Book Bistro. You know, occasionally we do creepy books and some horror kind of finds its way in. But to say that we really sit and chat about horror, um, that would not be accurate. So I have a, a historical fiction novel. I have some romance, some fantasy, some sci-fi, a thriller but pickings are pretty slim. I'm pretty happy with the things I've found for today, but I would have liked, as always, to have more. So I'm going to start out, as always, with a couple of books that you've heard us mention before on our most anticipated releases of October episode. The first one is As the Wicked Watch. This is the first book in Tamron Hall's Jordan Manning series. And this is a book that I mentioned. I'm super excited to read this. It looks like like a thriller about a journalist. Um, maybe some like legal stuff gets thrown in. It looks pretty awesome. Sarah talked about All the Feels, which is the sequel to last year's spoiler alert by Olivia Dade, some contemporary romance, if you're looking for that. And I'm going to now move on to some books that you haven't heard us mention before. Um, Starting out with a few fantasy, urban fantasy mostly, we have Broken Bonds, Lizzie Grace, number eight by Carrie Arthur. I have read the first couple books in this series. Um, It is about a witch who is in Australia. She has a human familiar who is also her best friend. I think this is pretty cool. And Carrie Arthur is just a phenomenal writer of very steamy urban fantasy and paranormal romance. So this is Broken Bonds, Lizzie Grace, number eight, by Carrie Arthur. Nalini Singh has a new book out this week. This is Archangel's Light. It is the 14th book in her Guild Hunter series. This is a series about angels and vampires and the hunters who kind of keep all of them under control. Um, here on the podcast, Nalini Singh's Sai Changeling books tend to be a little bit more popular than this series, but I have read several books in this series and I do really enjoy her writing. So this is Archangel's Light, Guild Hunter, book 14 by Nalini Singh. 
Next up, we have a new series. This is Grave Reservations. Grave Reservation, book one by Cherie Priest. This is urban fantasy with a little bit of a mystery thrown in. And it involves a psychic travel agent who teams up with a police detective to solve a murder. Stacy talked about a Cherie Priest book last year, I think for the creepy books episode. Um, but that one did feel more kind of ghosty, like haunted house-ish. Um, this feels more like urban fantasy. So this is Grave Reservations. Grave Reservation, book one by Cherie Priest. Moving on to some science fiction, we have Trashland by Alison Stein. Stein wrote a book last year called Road Out of Winter that I haven't read, but I did pick it up when it came out, and I do intend to read it at some point. But Trashland looks super cool. It's dystopian. It is about a teenage girl who lives in a world where trash is currency. And I'm not quite sure if this is like kind of post-apocalyptic or how this exactly works, but I want to read it and find out. It is Trashlands by Alison Stein. And we have a thriller. This is The Unheard by Nikki French. Nikki French is a pseudonym um, for a couple of British journalists who have written a number of thrillers, both standalones and series. This is a standalone, and it's about a woman who begins to notice that something is off with her three-year-old daughter. It seems that her daughter is, is disturbed. Um, she finds a really dark drawing mixed in with some artwork that her daughter has made. And she begins to wonder if her daughter could have witnessed something that has really frightened her. This is The Unheard, and it's by Nikki French. And my friends, last, but certainly not least, we have historical fiction. This is Sisters of the Great War by Suzanne Kelman. This is about two unconventional American sisters who volunteer to work on the front lines during World War I. One of them is apparently a nurse and the other is an ambulance driver. They do this and of course they end up getting way more than they bargained for as you would expect in a book about war. We have a lot of books currently floating around that deal with World War II. So I'm always really excited to see some World War I history coming our way. This is Sisters of the Great War and it's by Suzanne Kelman. And that is all I have this week. Um, I'm hoping that once we get out of the Halloween season and, you know, the, the horror stuff is a little less plentiful, perhaps we will see bigger numbers of books. Of course, everything, you know, having to do with the supply chain and all the shortages that we're seeing just all over our lives, um, this is all definitely impacting publishing too. So I'm sure that that has a big part to play in all of this as well. So I hope that you are all staying safe and well. Um, if you have plans for Halloween this coming week, please stay safe and have fun.
If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Thank you.